My name is Mike Diedrich, and with me today is Michael McPherson. We're members of Veterans for Peace Chapter 92, and this is the Veterans for Peace Chapter 92 radio program broadcast on KODX 96.9 FM. Today we're going to be talking about uh, our 20-year war in uh, Afghanistan and the ramifications of that. Uh, Veterans for Peace is a uh, nonprofit organization, a worldwide organization. Let me read the statement of purpose for Veterans of Peace. We, having dutifully served our nation, do hereby affirm our greater responsibility to serve the cause of world peace. To this end, we will work with others towards increasing public awareness of the cost of war, to restrain our governments from intervening overtly and covertly in the internal affairs of other nations, to end the arms race and to reduce and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons, to seek justice for veterans and victims of war, and to abolish war as an instrument of national policy. To achieve these goals, members of Veterans for Peace pledge to use nonviolent means and to maintain an organization that is both democratic and open with the understanding that all members are trusted to act in the best interest of the group for the larger purpose of world's peace. We urge all people who share this vision to join us. Uh, thank you, Mike, um, for the introduction. Um, hello to everyone. Um, we have a, a pretty good show uh, this month. Um, Mike and I interviewed uh, Chris Velasquez. He is a uh, Afghanistan, U.S. Afghanistan war veteran, as well as an Iraq war veteran. He served in both theaters or both places. Um, we wanted to have this discussion uh, because recently President Biden announced the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan by September 11 uh, of this year. Uh, of course, there had been another deadline set by the Trump administration for May 1st. Um, clearly that's not happening at this point. Uh, so yeah, so we wanted to talk about that. Um, so we're gonna get to the interview pretty quickly. We have a few minutes. Um, so I just wanted Mike to give his thoughts on, cause we didn't get to this in the interview. Um, why don't you give some thoughts real quick on um, the September 11, uh, the symbolism of the withdrawal deadline being September 11. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I, I didn't initially pick up on that, but it, it is a, um, um, I mean, you can take it in a bunch of ways. Um, it, it's ironic to say the least that we're just choosing that date to withdraw from Afghanistan. Um, you know, I, I, you know, despite the criticisms of this withdrawal, this is one of these things that had to happen sooner or later with or without the conditions that we like or we don't like. And we could have just as easily done this five years or 10 years ago um, and still have the same criticism. So once you get into one of these, these, these sort of wars, you're gonna to have to get out of them some way. Um, it's a little better withdrawal than the one we did in Vietnam, but the visuals will perhaps be a little bit better. So, I, I mean, it's just another war, 9-11 uh, uh, or not, that we're getting out of, and hopefully we can stay out of these wars in the future. Right, yeah, I don't really know. I agree with you. I don't really know what to think about the symbolism. I guess from a peace and anti-war or justice perspective, um, it's um, appropriate. Um, obviously, we should have left a long time ago. 
We didn't, but we're leaving now. Um, so leaving on the day of uh, gives us an opportunity, the day of the, the supposed reason that we went to war. It gives the nation, I think, an opportunity to think about was it worth the last 20 years? Was there a different way that we could have handled the situation? Um, was war necessary um, to remember everyone who was killed, including um, the Afghans? Uh, you know, so in many ways, um, at least from, a, I think, from a peace and justice uh, perspective, it's a, it's a good day, period, because we're, you know, we're leaving. But it's also a good time to to talk about the cost of war, the human cost, you know, so. Yeah, I think that our guest, Chris, uh, answers some of the questions you posed, and he does a very good job of, of addressing, you know, what was it worth it and uh, um, right. what are we going to do now, that sort of thing. Right. All right, everyone. So we're going to go ahead and, and, and get to the, to the interview. Um, I just ask everyone, as um, we move towards September 11th, uh, not to think that this is just automatically going to happen. Uh, so keep an eye on the U.S. withdrawal and um, push our government to withdraw because just because it says it's going to do something doesn't mean that it is going to happen. So we got to make sure it happens. But it looks better than it ever has since the war began that the U.S. is finally going to withdraw from Afghanistan. Now we got to get us out of Iraq and other places around the world. Alrighty, so here we go. Alaska's also from Veterans for Peace. The program is uh, Veterans for Peace uh, radio show, Chapter 92. Uh, today we're going to be talking about their 20-year occupation of um, Afghanistan and its aftermath, which is scheduled currently scheduled for all of our troops to come out of there by September of this year. Uh, Codex Radio 96.9 is uh, available through their website. All of our programs on Veterans for Peace are available on their radio station uh, site and also on VFP92.org. Yeah, so, we're happy to, to, to have Chris here on the show today. Um, Chris is um, a new staff member at Veterans for Peace. Um, so that's exciting uh, for me um, to be able to talk to him. Um, also, um, Chris is also a, a U.S. veteran of the Afghan Afghanistan war. So we get really two, two for one here in some ways. Um, so thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. Happy to be meeting uh, chapter, the Seattle chapter. Really yeah. excited. So I, I, I guess um, we really, you know, the show is about the U.S. withdrawal of Afghanistan, but 
one of the things we like to do when we have a, a veteran on the show is learn more about you as a person, as a veteran, you know, what uh, motivated you to, to join the military and, and a little bit about your time in the military. Sure, sure, absolutely. So, uh, name's Chris, and uh, I'm a United States Marine Corps veteran, served from 2004 to 2010. United States Marine Corps Reserves, where I actually spent uh, more time on active duty with on orders to or from a war zone uh, that uh, than I did as a reservist at home doing the one week and a month, two weeks a year that they tell you you're going to do. Uh, did a tour of Fallujah, Iraq in 2006, uh, from 2006 to 2007, right after the uh, uh, Operation Al-Fajr, Phantom Fury, the Battle of Fallujah. And then I did uh, the Helmand Province push in 2009 uh, as part of the Afghanistan surge, uh, largest helicopter-borne insert since Vietnam, from what I was told at the time. And since, I haven't seen anything that contradicts that. Uh, I did what's called civil affairs. It's basically run around with a million dollars in a backpack attached to an infantry unit, uh, winning hearts and minds of concept that got pioneered in Vietnam. Uh, the, the language kind of got changed, uh, but quickly realized, well, what we're doing there isn't quite the civil affairs humanitarian aid message that I wholeheartedly believed in. Uh, background on myself before joining the Marine Corps, both my parents were Marines. So I grew up in a Marine Corps family uh, and uh, had a long legacy of military service on my father's side. So uh, I believed wholeheartedly in the mission and, uh, you know, was there to help the local na local nationals be the liaison between the military and the local nationals, uh, build schools, hospitals, and wells, all <coughs> the that we're there to do in these uh, countries. And so uh, after return from home from Afghanistan, um, didn't know what to do with myself, and uh, 2015 rolls around, and Bernie, Bernie uh, runs for president in his first uh, presidential run, kind of gets me politi politicized, uh, because I felt so disconnected from the civilian side after I got out of the Marine Corps. Uh, so, and now I find myself here, uh, advocating the anti-war message, realizing that what we had done was so disconnected from, uh, what I had believed in and was proud of doing. So, uh, uh, doing whatever I can in my role as new, uh, staff member for VFP, uh, new to the... Gamers for Peace initiative, the online digital uh, presence that Veterans for Peace is trying to establish, and uh, really excited to be spreading the anti-war message uh, from a perspective of a OIF, OEF vet um, that's had uh, telling a side that's not told so much. You don't hear a lot of civil affairs operators uh, talking about what the uh, counterinsurgency mission is or was uh, at the time through these uh, areas of operation. Um, could you could you tell us um, briefly about the uh, um, gamers initiative? So you know you, you spoke briefly about it. Just let people know sure. what it is. Sure, I'll just do a quick plug. Uh, Twitch is a platform, internet platform that uh, is gives us essentially our own channel. So Gamers for Peace is a Veterans for Peace initiative where we have a Twitch channel. You can tune into our regularly posted broadcasting where we play some games there's over 8 billion gamers in the world or excuse me 8 yeah my statistic was right there is a growing population of gamers around the world uh that 
we are the army and other military industrial complex are trying to recruit uh, through and get their message out to a population that they normally wouldn't be able to. So Gamers for Peace initially started for as a truth and recruitment program, and it's now expanding to a wider platform, echoing the greater messages of VFP, including climate change, support of the Veterans Advocacy Program, uh, and spreading the message of the, our local chapters in this non-geolocated platform with a Twitch channel or Twitch channel for our broadcasts and a Discord channel for our uh, which is essentially a chat room for anybody around the organization to get involved in and find a community, have fun in, and engage uh, the anti-war message in activities and hobbies that we all that bring us all together that we participated in as as military service members and as civilians in just pure uh, personal passion. So it's a great new space that we're trying to get everybody in. Wow, that sounds awesome. And let me ask you one other question before we start, I think anyway, digging into um, the current topic about the Afghan war. So what, well, I guess there's two questions. What led you to decide to leave the military? And um, what led you to Veterans for Peace? Hmm. So uh, led me to get out. I got out, came back from Afghanistan. Uh, I had lost a good friend while I was in Afghanistan. Um, and, uh, had started noticing some things within my own unit that gave me pause and, uh, caused me to reflect when I first came home. Um, I don't think the story of a lot of, uh, reserve veterans gets exposed, uh, for the, the, the incongruities of, uh, deployment life when you're on active duty versus the disregard that or like the separation and send back to civilianhood while still in this active military mindset. Uh, so when coming uh, back from Afghanistan and demobbing, uh, there wasn't a care about job lined up or any of the things that a veteran or a combat veteran really needs to get them back into society or to reintegrate them. Um, I ran into some personal issues, my own mindset, my own uh, thoughts uh, regarding what I had done in Afghanistan, what I've been part of, and uh, I started just not liking what I was reflecting on. So uh, my contract was up. I did my six years as a reservist, uh, six years of active reserves, and then uh, dropped to IRR and decided I was done, going to pursue a, a degree. Uh, and uh, I struggled. I struggled quite a lot after coming home. Um, it was uh, struggled getting benefits, assistance from the VA uh, for mental health and the and whatnot, and um, bounced around college. Took went took the long route to get here, so went through college, all that good stuff. Struggled and uh, found myself uh, using the VOC rehab program to work with uh, disabled American veterans as a national service officer uh, to a figure out how I could help veterans get their benefits uh, and B because I needed work and I was having trouble in the civilian sector. I needed to rely on my be my veteran benefits and uh, DAV gave me a home uh, that kind of was a military mindset. Unfortunately for me, my, um, my mindset didn't quite match with the work environment and they do amazing work over there. Um, and I wasn't ready to be in that space, so I had a lot of internal work to do on myself. My healing journey had actually just begun, um, and working with them 
was part of that healing journey and it brought me here where uh, I have a new home uh, we're building a new community in that online place and uh, that's I think that's one of the the proudest the best accomplishments or uh, uh, things that we can talk about it is just the fact that VFP is a home for people that recognize the moral injury of time of what they've done in service across their years and um, and want to do something change and advocate for a difference while they're healing themselves because that's part of the healing process that we go through uh so i'm like i keep saying it but i'm so happy and excited to be part of vfp you know i'm new into this uh role as staff member new to the organization as a member and uh but it feels like it's been a home that i've been looking for for a long time i'd probably say for almost a decade now since coming back from afghanistan well chris uh welcome home I'm glad to hear you found a home. It's been my home too for a long time. I uh, interesting when you talk about uh, payments were made. I was in military intelligence in Vietnam and uh, came back with a lot of the reactions that you just talked about. Uh, but I, one of the things that uh, was used in dealing with the prisoners of war and also intelligence was basically paying people for information, for weapons, caches, and that sort of thing, which is probably in the Looking back, probably as effective as anything we did. <laughs> so, um, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, some of your reaction to what, especially stateside. I don't. Know, you mentioned uh, to your fellow fellow uh, your comrades. So, what what did that sort of reaction have to do? Uh, can you be more, any more specific without uh, giving yourself a charge of war crimes? <laughs> so, um, you know. Civil affairs in the Marine Corps at the time, so obviously I'm speaking 10 years out of date, 11 years out of date, so, and I kind of, when I came out, got out, I distanced myself pretty hard from military life uh, and the unit that I was attached to, but at the time, um, when I joined the Marine Corps Joint Civil Affairs, there was uh, only two units in the Marine Corps that were actually tasked with the civil affairs role or, or job. Um, and they're both reserve units, uh, less than 500 some odd Marines. And during the deployments, when things are getting heated up and we're getting ready to mobilize, you see a lot of in, an influx of officers or higher level, higher ranked enlisted that are looking towards retirement or things like that, joining the unit for what ostensibly is is a really nice thing to have on your resume that you did civil affairs uh, with, with no training. Uh, at the time, there wasn't very much of a MOS for civil affairs. It was all on the job training for reservists with the minds, the idea that these civilian warriors bring their skills from civilian side and reflect in the reserve in the unit in the mission abroad um, because civil affairs is so all encompassing. So you get civilian contractors or plumbers or electricians or civil engineers to come in and lend their tradecraft overseas in a more of a project manager role while trying to use local nationals also manage the propaganda the and the the public relations with the local nationals so there's a lot of hats that civil affairs wears that really there's not a whole lot of uh, actual training in a traditional mos sense it's on the job so when we get work when we work up for these jobs you got a lot of people coming in that like it for their resume because they're about to retire or like it because it's a career promoter assistant promotion so there's uh 
tend there can be glory hounding some of the complaints about that uh, me personally there's another topic as another topic that uh, came up in uh, more recently you know there's uh, lots of calls in uh, in the press in in media attention right now regarding like white supremacy or racism in the military there's also homophobia elements and things like that uh, so I butted up against a lot of um, walls that are barriers that just presented themselves to me because I wasn't part of um, a local group and uh, I have a different I had a different outlook on what the mission was I guess uh, as far as like money exchanges and things I realized that uh, a lot of the work that we were doing uh, served an ulterior motive of gathering information or furthering the war effort and not bringing peace and stability to an area, but further excusing or uh, applying um, a, uh, smoothing over of what the actual mission was, which was to go into local national farmers that had nothing to do with what's going on, occupy some farmland, and hold down and, and promote promote um a police state over people that are just trying to live their lives that would have benefited more from grander scale uh, infrastructure projects at a at a at a societal level and a lot of the same issues that and teachings that we would uh, implement our operations would have been more effective here stateside i used to talk about hey the money that i'm spending here right now i could literally walk into a brooklyn condemned uh, condemned household and fix brooklyn with what tools and assets i have in front of me and that would actually have a greater impact worldwide than occupying and being and bringing a single well to this location and and causing a lot of fear and trauma to local nationals um i don't i don't think the lives that were taken um and that we paid reparations for or the damages we did to farms and paid reparation for or households and paid reparations for was nearly as beneficial as um as not military intervention doing humanitarian actual humanitarian aid with goodwill as a good faith actor in the region with a larger uh outlook towards uh all the intersecting factors um just so our listeners know mos is military occupational specialty um you know sometimes we use these words because we know them so well and basically you're just saying that they really didn't have any any specific training for for that um, role, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very much. In uh, Vietnam, these were called, uh, and they were uh, uh, Marine Corps units actually participated in it. They were called CAPs, Civilian Action Patrols, and they were fairly fairly effective because, for one, they didn't go into a village and burn it down, or shoot people they thought were uh, enemy. And uh, we're indulged in this infrastructure, including just sort of basic stuff like you know providing medical care to people. Um, yeah, I mean that was a good face of the Americans in, in uh, Vietnam, but there weren't enough of them, and it was a little bit too late. So. Yeah. Well, I think this leads us into just getting right down to um, talking about the U.S. leaving Afghanistan after 20 years, um, the fact that 
the the deadline is September 11. We could even talk about the symbolism of that because people feel differently about what that symbolizes. So as a Afghan and Afghan war, U.S. Afghan war veteran, and, and obviously you've been in Iraq too. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on on this withdrawal? Um, what do you think it means, and and do you think it's really going to happen? So. I think I we should not be in Afghanistan. Like just blanket statement there there is a need for a diplomatic voice and not a guiding hand. Guiding hand isn't the thing that I want to say, but there needs to be an international consensus working towards larger scale goals that affect the globe. I wholeheartedly believe in that. I do not believe America or the U.S. needs to do that through military intervention or with military presence around the globe. Um, I don't think that civilian contractors, private military industrial complex, the larger military industrial complex, uh, and uh, – intelligence agencies should have a role in that rebuilding either um so should troops be in afghanistan iraq or in for uh, further extension not directly related to the war but like in a lot of these countries what i believe it's seven over 700 some odd bases around the world um in sovereign nations this shouldn't be the case Right, that is not a peacekeeping uh, effort. That that does not promote that promotes military industrial complex uh, uh, initiatives, and not necessarily bringing peace or an anti-war message or uh, anything like that. So I would love to see a complete withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan. What I think I've read. The expectation is, or I believe the expectation is, that there will be no troops on ground, but we'll be posting further aircraft carriers, off-site off naval warships, uh, probably an expansion military bases in surrounding countries that we have uh, contracts with, uh, how those contracts are made and the conditions of those contracts are up in the air. So, And I think that I don't believe biden's reference said anything about the private military industrial or private military um companies or cia or state level things it only i think it only mentioned dod assets as in the military um and as far as troops so artillery has a huge range posted on a border you're still threatening afghanistan that isn't having presence in the re military presence in the region is the same as being in country when a drone knows no borders and can fly at supersonic speeds um and i think that's the reality is that while we we're promoting this this withdrawal in actuality while the military like while the military has a bloated budget and has worldwide presence and the marine corps says that it can get a uh it can have a presence any place in the world within 24 hours, boots on ground. While that is a fact that the military is proud of, any lip service to a withdrawal from any place in the world is just that. It's lip service and not actually going to have an actual effect on what's happening in those regions. Thank you for those remarks. I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree with your analysis. I was, what, what, What's your sort of reaction to uh, 
uh, it's not an original thought on my part that actually the military has been sort of the dog or the tail wagging the dog. And the dog in the case is being the United States, the tail is, is the military. Uh, they were wholeheartedly unanimously opposed to, to Biden's initiative and any other earlier initiatives going back years about withdrawing from Afghanistan or any other place in the Middle East. And that in fact, the military has to, I mean, the senior military has to bear a large version of responsibility for what we do overseas. And it's not necessarily the civilians that are running, running the show here. Whether it's the tail wagging the doll, like the that analogy is apt, but I think the the military industrial complex, the the corporations that make money off of the promoted military, uh, the bloated military, and the brushfire wars that we've been engaged with, um, I I they've been around since World War II. It's an outgrowth of the last honorable war we've 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 had. Um, or were participating in to stop Nazi Germany. And if my history's not the greatest, but Raytheon's been around for a while, along with all these other companies. And there's a lot of reasons. Uh, there's a lot of profit motive for corporations to have interest in us being in these other nations. Uh, and I don't know. Was it Secretary of Defense is a former Bo Raytheon board member, I believe. Uh, who I think I just saw the last uh, a statistic that said that since he stepped into his position, he's already awarded Raytheon two point some odd billion dollars in military contracts, and that's in four months or yeah, three months and six days. Two point eight, I think it's two point eight billion dollars awarded to Raytheon directly from the current Secretary of Defense. So whether it's military leadership civilian side or anything i don't think until there's a profit motive is withdrawn from military intervention we're going to see any type of withdrawal or peace or anti-war traction around the world uh i i just don't know how to how to separate those things well that mike mike and i have a little bit of a point of departure about this about the generals versus the civilians but first, I want to say this idea of, of taking profit out of war, that's not happening because it's been in war. It's always been in war. You know, they go and they take what they used to call the booty, right? You know, so uh, of, of warfare. So taking people's stuff is what wars have always kind of been about anyway, you know. Um, so I don't know about that. Um, I do feel like if, if we were able to, I feel a lot about, I feel that a lot of our aggression in the world is because of men controlling the world. And while I don't think that war in and of itself is because of patriarchy or, or, or men specifically, I do think the way that we conduct wars today, the never ending of it, the constant um, seeking of domination is, is rooted definitively in, in the way men uh, approach things. And that if we were to have more balance um, between, um, the, I, and you know, I know there's a spectrum. So this is not to say that there's a male way and a female way. So I'm not exactly saying that, but um, there is a way that men tend to be. And if we were to have more balance in the approach to the world, you know, more community, more thoughtfulness about each other, I don't think that would end war, 
but there wouldn't be so much of it. And there wouldn't be like this constant move to dominate things. So I, I think that that's the biggest problem in terms of how we approach. There wouldn't be, there wouldn't be empire building all the time, you know? Um, but uh, as far as the responsibility of the um, civilians versus the military, I kind of look at it like this. Our system's supposed to be, and maybe it just doesn't work over time, supposed to be set up where the civilians make the decisions. Um, and they listen to the military's I, thoughts on it, but the political decisions are supposed to be made by the civilians. I don't expect the, the generals, the necessarily, I think really good ones will, but, but not to necessarily give the civilians, um, say, well, we can't do this. I actually expect them to always say they can. And it's kind of like, if I train a dog to attack, do I really expect the dog to give me the right decision and messages about when it should attack? The dog always wants to attack, you know? And so I see the military as kind of being like the dog, you know, and it's always wanting to go, always thinks that it, it can win the fight even when it can't. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to tell you, Chris, is that you might, if you haven't already, you might want to read uh, Smedley Butler's book, Addicted to War, um, because you can see he talked about and he's one of your, as a Marine, you know his name, right? Because he's one of the gods of the Marine Corps. Um, he, he talked about the same issues when it comes to the, really the military industrial complex, but this was pre-World uh, War II uh, and how the, the US military and um, business has been intertwined with each other. And it'd be, I mean, when hasn't it been really? Because if you think about it, even the westward expansion um, of, uh, of the, of the people um, colonizing the West that was led and protected by the military. Um, there was business interest there. Um, moving native people off of their land in the South so that they could bring enslaved people uh, to cultivate the land to, to uh, grow cotton. That was business interest. You know, so I don't know if there's ever been a time where uh, the business interests and uh, the military interests weren't intertwined, you know? So I just wanted to put those comments out there. Um, so one thing you said, I don't know if you want to react to what I said, but one thing you also said was um, you believed in the mission and then you, it seems like over time you realized, uh, wait a minute, this is not what I thought it was gonna be. So after you react to what I was saying, if you could just talk about that a little bit maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I I do agree with the messaging around the patriarchy, and I do think like those two sentiments you just expressed, Michael, dovetail together really well. I do think that we have these forever wars and this colonialism and the expansion of the military-industrial complex and war effort as as due to a fear response. It's an over-aggressive fear response from from a uh, that's reinforced by gender roles in American society. Uh, and I do think that addressing that, talking about it, and um, and really realizing that fear and the militarization and the military fetishization of civilian of the civilian life, when vets get out or when Marines, Army personnel, when, when service members get out, they are civilians. They enter the civilian sector. They become lobbyists. Um, they they – there, yeah, I don't believe that this continued separation of 
veteran military service member or active service member and civilian sector can can maintain itself like if we keep looking at how civilian sectors have adopted the punisher logo and blacked out their vehicles and then we look at the gear that people are wearing and the abundance of firearms and military shoot things uh we have uh that as we've been calling them on uh, a podcast another podcast i was on and in gamers for peace uh platform uh vet bros where we see like uh black rifle company coffee beans this militarization of civilian people bleeds right back up and it becomes this cycle that the military gets out it gets here worshipped civilians start using the military or veteran status as a label of uh, uh, hierarchical nature and they invest in that social clout that veterans have which boosts them back into the political limelight and it reinforces our policy and everything so i don't think you can argue and say is the dog wagging the tail or is the tail wagging the dog it's the same thing it's a self-fulfilling cycle that until we we say hey my generation needs to be the last generation of veterans that's the message that needs to be given now we don't need veterans anymore we need people that are doing things for society and understand that like this messaging is uh, intersecting and that if we are still venerating veterans and what we have done in the past as anything other than you shouldn't do this if a veteran's message is anything other than listen i don't want anybody else to do that nobody else should go to war what i did over there should never be done again and unless every veteran is promoting that and making sure that there are no more stopping recruiting working to stop recruiting we're just going to keep seeing that cycle keep uh reinforcing itself that fear is going to become uh all-encompassing it's going to promote us into additional wars we're just going to be i think it's eight I've lost count. I believe it's eight illegal offensive wars around the world that we're participating in. You include uh, the genocide, the assistance of Saudi Arabia with the genocide in Yemen. Um, So, like, that's going to become 15 by, like, over the next decade if, if we see that happen with the way things are going with climate change. So until we stop that, until we advocate for how patriarchy, white supremacy, and colonialism, imperialism, capitalism are intertwined with the military industrial complex and the wars we are fighting as the justification for why we're doing these things and then the breaking of the language in which we talk about it with civilians until that all changes we're just going to keep seeing this escalation continue and that's kind of what i realized while i was in afghanistan I started realizing that, yeah, we got a market up and running, and we got a school in this location, but a school in Loy Calais, one school that gets uh, vandalized because it's an American institution. It's a colonial effort to bring American-style American learning and education to a culture and place that is not America. It's just another form of colonialism, and that's how they would see it. And it took a while for me to start learning that what I am bringing here is the U.S. war effort. I am not these people. You don't need massive, massive state-level infrastructure to have a population, a rural population, take care of themselves in a community effort that are already doing it and have been doing it and fighting more wars than we have, have been invaded more times over the last 70 years at this point, 
or 80 years. I've lost track. It coming up on a century of active invasions um, between Brits, Russians, U.S., State Department, spooks, CIA, all that. They don't need our lessons. They don't need our schools. They don't need our money. Like everybody benefits from money because that's how the world works because that's how imperialism has it set up. But when um, realizing that the grenade that was fired and it went through somebody's corner of a, a household and killed an entire family and the first time walking into that village, the father came out carrying his one son wrapped in a blanket like, and looking at it because it was our grenade that did it after we were returning fire probably to pop shots. Uh, be, and being the civil affairs marines that are responding to that stuff, you start really – it starts adding up that, hey, this guy is just a, a farmer that an MRAP rolled down his street and he took a shot at it, right? Um, my messaging has become more uh, – I've become a lot louder in my, in my discourse and rhetoric over the last year with the uh, BLM movement and the the last summer's act like activism now, you know that was my first time being boots on ground here and um, it's funny when asked over the years about my time in Afghanistan what it was like what it was like for the civilians why are they doing this like why are they fighting a war with America so on and so forth my response was like how would you imagine seeing Humvees up like tanked up harm Humvees with guys with 50 cal machine guns rolling down your neighborhood street and there's a disconnect until like even as i living that being the guy patrolling in front of the humvee rolling down a city street there was still a disconnect until i had an mrap and an ump armored humvee roll down a street near me and when that happened it it all clicked from just rhetoric to, oh, no, this is out of hand. This is an actual lived experience, and this is what I actually did. Um, and until that happened, intellectually, I understood this all. But, like, deep down, core seated part of my, my being, it absolutely was completely rocked seeing 20 mic mic, 20 millimeter grenades <laughs> land five feet away from me and five feet away from loved ones because I wasn't there alone. Um, and those kinds of things rock, rocked me to my core. And I'm, I'm a combat vet. I'm, I mean, I have, I'm, I'm not a stranger to combat, but I am not nearly as decorated and I, and I like, or glorified in my military experience or combat experience. But I've been shot at before, as a lot of veteran, a lot of us in the community have been. And still that rocked me, seeing up armored police in in MRAPs firing munitions that I was using or that I had to pay out to families after they killed people um, was absolutely devastating and just that was the realization in in real life that was the experienced realization that I intellectually had in 2010 2011 and um, it, it took a lot of growth to go from the military mindset where I was still able to justify it but pose it as a theoretical to an actual reality that I need to express that I can't keep silent anymore and that needs to be told and lived. And uh, I think for me, 
personally, the biggest thing that I've realized is that the call should be the veteran bodies to the front. I heard a lot of white bodies to the front, um, a lot of men bodies to the front, things like that out out on lines and the next call needs to be veteran bodies to the front we have privilege and and uh experience that has social clout that can change things on the ground for civilians and we should we should be using that experience to guard uh our civilians that are that are are being oppressed the most by the same tactics behaviors and things that we were exporting overseas uh and that's a really long-winded answer <laughs> to uh to give to you but it was it's been a learning experience right no that was great thank you mike yeah well thank you for those remarks chris it's it's uh, uh your personal experience about seeing on the ground reality was you know similar to mine and many other veterans in my case of seeing a lot of dead civilians uh, killed by us. Uh, my, my sort of a comment, and I'll, I, I'm not going <laughs> to worry this thing to death, but <laughs> I think that as veterans, we need to hold people who start wars and keep them going. We need to hold them accountable. And in the case of our recent 20 years, um, the generals who said, yeah, I can do that. How, do you, how high do you want me to jump? I can jump like that. Now, these people, senior military leadership, most of these people are college graduates, uh, war college graduates. They're not stupid people. Uh, they knew that getting into a war of tribal war warfare, which is what Afghanistan was and many other places, was not a good, smart thing to do. And, and actually, that is true of Vietnam, getting involved in their uh I mean, well, getting involved in that in Iraq in the first place, you know, a general by a famous general by the name of Colin Powell said that that's a bad idea, but I'm, I'll go along to get along. I think that as veterans, we have a unique position to actually hold these people accountable. And the thing is that military, senior military leadership and officers in particular, and also senior NCOs, you probably heard us, you know, they, they regard civilians with contempt, you know. They're civilians, sneer civilians. Well, the thing about officers in particular, and also seniors, is that they have this idea of honor, duty, and patriotism that says we're above civilian machinism and Machiavellians because we hold, we have a responsibility to the troops, we have a responsibility to our country, and we would not do things that would impeach our honor. I mean, it's honor. But all of these generals who knew better said, well, we can do this, even though they knew better. And, you know, in the case of Afghanistan and Iraq, there's what, 15,000 Americans dead or 20,000. And those people are directly responsible for advising the civilians. And I'll use an example of about 15 years ago, Peace Trees Vietnam had a, a symposium, an annual meeting. And at that, the uh, keynote speaker was a retired Navy Admiral, a Rear Admiral, I believe. And after the uh, this was just shortly after the invasion of Iraq. And after the uh, presentation, I went up to this admiral and I says, uh, uh, sir, do you think that if more general officers would have taken up their stars or stood up and says, this is a bad idea, it would have made a difference? And he said, yes, it would have made a big difference. And he says, I'm very disappointed in my peers, as in my you know, the senior military officers that didn't do that. I think that would have made a difference, a big difference. That's why I think I think that they hold themselves to this higher standard, but when it comes to going along and getting along and getting their pensions, they they you know toss all that 
honor duty crap right out the window in their constitutional duty. I, and I think as veterans, we have an obligation to hold them responsibility to that. I, but, I would I would wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, yeah. it, we do have a responsibility. And I think what you're talking about is a pipeline that we see in civilian policing, also with killology. We do see um, a bleed out of militarization from the military into police, and that gets cycled back up, yeah. right? The language that you're talking about where, where – uh, officers or military members, NCOs, see themselves above or separate from a uh, civilian side. That gets repeated in killology teachings towards police, where you get references to wolves versus sheep, dogs versus sheep, mm-hmm. and and that there's a role like we need to be apex predators that don't think like the civilians because civilians don't have the stomach to protect themselves, and it's our role that we need to do this. So I think there's a crossover in 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 the how um the military sees itself and how civilians see themselves or and how the military sees itself in its role in guardianship or stewardship and and instead of being it towards national interest but being more global interests or intersecting uh factors like the military is is one of the largest um non-eco-friendly uh, things in the world, yeah. right? Yeah, largest footprint. Yep, largest largest footprint, right? But the military having not being the military and and actually recognizing that the global climate change is the largest worldwide uh, catastrophe that it is on the precipice. That is a war front, and I I don't want to use military language to talk about this because that kind of justifies framing uh increased military spending but a redirection of the military to its efforts like there's a lot of big brain people that i served with that were enlisted and young officers that they care about the environment and things like that and if a fraction of the budget was directed from expansion of the military war effort to fighting global change global climate change and that call is caused by a shift in the language from being warriors to being guardians or stewards or or putting or or helping use the resources of a nation to combat the larger intersecting problems that face the globe in non-war fighting efforts right because we need to treat the material conditions that cause war that's what the goal of the military should be and as we keep framing it around we need to drop bombs on this group of brown people we're never going to that's never going to change and Officers do need to take off their take off their stars. Uh, National Guard members, when they're patrolling the streets uh, in various cities around the country, right, because of uh, civil unrest, you know, they need to be dropping the riot shields and M16s, dropping their flak jackets, and going, saying, taking a stand. And I think that a lot of that has to do with developing a community that they know that they can that they're that is outspoken so that they know they're not alone when they drop their shield or they drop their gear. They know they're going to be received well so that they can amplify their voices to it. Um, Because I don't know how many enlisted guys actually know, because I didn't know when I was in 2010, when I came back from Afghanistan, I didn't know how to speak out or that I even could. So uh, I, it is a fundamental flaw in how we think our military should be operating, how military people view themselves versus civilian side. And it's also a fundamental flaw in that 
there's not a home for anti-war veterans that is known while you're in service. Right? There's no easy pipeline that gets alternative thought or provides thought leaders that tell somebody that reinforce positive healing behavior and going, hey, what you're feeling right now is okay to say that I don't like seeing dead civilian bodies. I don't like seeing I don't like when we start talking about putting rounds down range and talking about spreading hate and discontent as as a lot of reference to uh, putting round putting rounds down range or being engaged in a firefight. Right. There's a common saying that we talk about in the Marine Corps. And until that language changes, until the culture in military changes, you're not going to see people think that what they're doing in the military is wrong. That's why a general isn't going to say that going into Iraq is wrong because there's nothing around him that says that he's allowed to admit that in the military culture or in civilian culture because he loses hero worship. There's a financial incentive to go along from the civilian contractors and corporations there's monetary I mean, you can also enter lobbyists and uh media you know you want to be a talking head be a veteran be a general that advocated for war and go on fox how much money are you making per appearance mm-hmm. right like colin powell after the facts like or or these generals after the fact after we've gone in, right. are saying that i should have said something yeah more well, if they took off, everybody in that room had a chance to do that, and they didn't do that because the money incentive was there for them to not do it. The peer pressure was there from mm-hmm. the administration, civilian, from the contractors and whatnot were there to incentivize them to not do it. And their own personal social clout with their friends, family, and civilian side all reinforced mm-hmm. that this was the right thing to do because that's what America does. And it's been what America has done since Vietnam since world war Two, right under various guises you know not saying that that's what was in world war Two, but after right so like and if you look at the larger history of american corporations and and ties to nazi germany and things like that there's a whole cycle of how money flows to that needs to be discussed and why there are social reinforcements and financial reinforcements to go along with the military industrial complex and the war effort right yeah so so um, we're really at the end um, of our time. And, you know, this has been a great discussion and I wish we had more time uh, to do this. So we're going to have to have you back on uh, sometime in the near future. I, I would love to be back on. I'm, I would love to plug a lot more and talk about Gamers for Peace, new initiative, uh, and anything else that you guys would love to talk about. I know I'm long-winded, but... Uh, no, you're great. I have lots of thoughts. No. <laughs> Yeah, and, and we're going to have to keep our eye on whether or not this um, withdrawal actually happens. You know, Mike, do you have any closing thoughts? I just wanted to thank Chris and an excellent analysis. And uh, I do wish we had some more time on this thing, but p- perhaps later. I, I think it, it's, I don't think it's going to be going away. And as you say, your, your uh, uh, detailing of uh, our offshore um, military capability in the Gulf is, is going to be gone ongoing. And uh, uh, I mean, we already have a huge number of troops in Saudi Arabia and, and, and other uh, Arab countries. So your analysis is spot on. Uh, just like you say, you know, the military and, they, and, and the corporation, they, they have a, had an incestuous relation going back uh, decades, if not hundreds of years in this country and also other countries. You know, it's an it's a, uh, occupational hazard of being in the military business as usual. Um, 
All right. Well, once again, thank you, Chris. And um, we'll, you take care of yourself. And, and thanks for um, being a staff member of Veterans for Peace. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for having me, Michael and Mike. It was uh, great being here. Uh, have a great one. Well, that's it for this month. Before we go, let me give credit where credit is due. The theme music is untouchable, and the transition music to the interview is Spanish Winter, both by The Passion Hi-Fi. You can find his music at thepassionhi-fi.com. Thanks again to our guest, Veterans for Peace digital coordinator, Chris Velasquez. He is a U.S. Marine combat veteran with a tour in Afghanistan and Iraq. We really appreciate him taking the time to come on the show. And of course, thanks to my co-host, Mike Dietrich. Now, remember the show airs and streams every fourth Wednesday of the month, 6 to 7 p.m. on KODX 96.9 FM Seattle. Thank you all out there for listening. Tune in next month. And until next time, power to the people, power to the people.